Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Heather Pedestal. Uh, She is an Associate Dean for Research at North Carolina State University. And we're going to talk about the impact of uh, consumer products that could cause toxicological effects or health effects. So, Heather, thanks for coming. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. If you would, tell me about your research. Yeah, so we're really interested in the brain and how aspects of the environment can affect both brain development and function. So we're really... uh, highly focused on chemicals in your home and in your environment that can affect brain development. Okay. So what what are some of the most common chemicals or the most impactful chemicals that people are around in the home environment? Well, so we focus a lot on plasticizers or chemicals that are found in plastics. And we also focus on flame retardants, which is in furniture and a lot of your home building materials, like your wallboard and flooring. Okay. Um, I thought you would focus more on cleaners, I guess, but, um, so what kind of studies have you done around people's homes and environments? Have you gone in there with, you know, meters and see what kind of chemicals they're exposed to? Like, what's, what's your research been like? Yeah, so I'm the neuroscientist, but like many scientists, I work with a whole bunch of other scientists to address these questions. So we have collaborators that go into the homes and try to ask things like, you know, what kind of chemicals are in your house dust or what kind of chemicals are on your skin or what kind of chemicals are in food, Right. And then when we know that and we kind of have an understanding of what's there and what's really common and what's new. So we're interested, for example, in flame retardants that have only been around for 
five, six, seven, eight years, but are now showing up in people's bodies and ask the question like, huh, okay, they're in our bodies. Um, do they have any kind of health effects? And so as the neuroscientist, I kind of focus on that. We do a lot of animal experimentation for that because the brain is tricky to work on with humans, but we collaborate with chemists and a lot of other people to sort of make sure that we're asking questions that really address the reality of the human situation. So, you know, again, what was an example of an experiment with you done and, uh, you know, what was your hypothesis in doing so? Yeah. Okay. So we found a new group of flame retardants that look a lot like a type of pesticide. They're called organophosphate pesticides that we know are neurotoxic to the brain. So we were concerned that maybe these new flame retardants would also be toxic to the brain. So one experiment that we do is we expose an animal model. So we use um, rats like many other laboratories do. But we also use a different animal model called prairie voles. And the reason we use them is because they're socially monogamous. So they'll pick a mate and they'll mate for life and they'll have offspring again and again. And dad will show paternal care like rats. That's just not the case. But in the prairie voles, the dads do. And so we expose the animals through food. So they're eating it just like you would if you're sitting on the couch eating potato chips and the flame retardants are getting on your food. Um, and then looked at the behavior of the offspring. And so we can look for a lot of social traits that we know people with disorders like autism and ADHD have deficits in. And so we look at a chemical and then we sort of pick the right animal model to ask questions about aspects of human health. Um, that we know are at risk. So trying to understand in the broader sense how exposure to these chemicals might contribute to neural developmental disorders that are becoming more and more common. So uh, did you look at children or adults? You know, how do you study people when they're home? What do you get to recreate the situation in a lab? Where you go into the home and test? Like what, what's the mechanics of this experimentation look like? Yeah, that's a really great question. So we'll take data from colleagues and from published papers to tell us, okay, how much of this flame retardant that we're interested in is in, you know, a child's body in the United States, right? And so it's always going to be a range. And then we try to dose our animals the same way that maybe a toddler would be exposed or a pregnant woman would get exposed. So it's usually by eating the, the chemical to, to, so that, that it's at bodily levels in our animal that matches the human. So we try to match the human condition as much as we can. And then we say, okay, what do we think is going to be wrong with this animal? So it might be a behavioral trait, it might be a cognitive trait, or it might be an anatomical trait in the brain. And so that's really tricky to look at in humans, but we can do that in an animal. We can look at whole circuits and pathways. Um, we can look at different populations of neurons. We can look at whole you know, systems and see what's affected by these chemicals. And then we'll work with epidemiologists and others who do studies in humans so that then they can ask these questions of, oh, okay, are we seeing an association between exposure during pregnancy and, you know, this outcome in children? And so in a way, it's a very like reciprocal conversation between lots of different people, including us, to try to figure out what is going on and then what is the mechanism that's going on to really definitively demonstrate causation. Because like, I'm sure you can appreciate, we can't run the experiment where we expose a bunch of pregnant women to flame retardants and then wait to find out what happens, right? We, we can't do that. So we can only really ask and query associations in humans. But in animals, we can add to that some experimental data. And then hopefully, collectively, we have something important to say about human health. So what have you discovered? Or is it early enough that you haven't done the experimentation? Or 
or have you? Like, what have you found? Well, so some of the things that we've found is that not all chemicals can reach the developing brain. Instead, they accumulate at really high levels in the placenta. And at first we think, okay, that's great. That's what the placenta is for. But we're really interested in a group of chemicals that are called endocrine disrupting chemicals. So an endocrine disrupting chemical is a chemical that affects any hormone in your body. And so hormones are things like estrogen or testosterone or insulin. And the placenta is a very incredible endocrine organ. And it does a lot of things to support brain development. And so what we've started to discover is that as the placenta protects the fetus from these chemicals, they accumulate in the placenta and they can actually cause harm to the placenta. And it changes the function of the placenta, which then struggles to support the developing brain. And so it's very possible that we can get neural developmental outcomes from a chemical that never even touches the developing brain. And that's a profound thing to know because we're moving away from animal testing and toxicology. We're trying to, to model some of these things in in vitro systems, and that's going to make it tricky to model, um, to try and figure out how effects in one organ, a complex organ, can affect another organ. So it's got us all rethinking how to do that kind of testing in a more streamlined and less animal intensive kind of way. And so those discussions. Well, is there, is there even fun. testing done at all? I mean, on, you know, women that are hairdressers or people that are working in a, you know, a nail salon. I mean, I walk by those places and like you choke on all the chemicals. Is anyone testing these people or no? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, okay. So chemical testing is a complicated thing. Um, I think most people don't realize that most of the chemicals that come to market in the United States are not tested for any kind of toxicity at all, period. None, not, not any form of it. And if they are, they're most often tested for things that are really overt, like complete death. You know, is this, is this chemical going to kill you or cancer? It's a real struggle to get any of the other chemicals tested, and it's even bigger struggle to get them reduced in usage or pulled from the market. There are a lot of biomonitoring studies. You know, you mentioned the nail salon people, which they have very high exposures to a variety of different chemicals like formaldehyde, some flame retardants, things like that. But it's difficult to get them restricted. And, and there's good evidence to show linkages between exposure and illness. But unfortunately, our system is not quick at pulling some of the more dangerous chemicals off the market. Well, what are some of them? What, what are specific examples of things that you've looked at that are hazardous? Okay, so one chemical is bisphenol A or BPA. I don't know if you've heard of this chemical, but if you buy a water bottle, mm -hmm. there'll be a sticker on the front usually that says BPA-free. And that's because the water bottles are not made with bisphenol A in them anymore. 
And it was discovered pretty early on. It was, it was actually known all the way back to the 1930s that this chemical was estrogenic in the body, but it became incorporated into plastics in the 1950s. And the debate was always that exposure was way too low for there to be any kind of effect in humans. But through a lot of work, through a lot of different laboratories, the data compounded to show that no, if you have developmental exposure to BPA, you are at higher risk of prostate cancer, prostate, breast cancer, and neurodevelopmental problems. And I, I think one of the neatest projects that I have personally ever worked on was called the Clarity BPA Program. And it was a collaboration between NIH and FDA to share animals and data and tools to really hone in on what the risks were for bisphenol A. And the sum total of the data when you took everyone's studies and put them together showed that you get effects at really lower far lower levels of this chemical than anyone thought. And so the, the United States has yet to, re, to refine its rules on safe levels, but the European Union and most other countries have. And because of that data, a bunch of manufacturing companies and, and stores like Walmart and Target said, nope, we're going to reformulate. We're not going to have bottles that have this chemical in them more. We're going we're gonna to redo everything and we're going to make sure that we're selling safe things to consumers. And so that was a huge success and a huge win. Well, I thought bisphenol A was simply replaced with another chemical that's very similar that no one knows the effects of. I forget the name, but... Yeah, there's a bisphenol alphabet soup. So there's bisphenol S, with S as in Sam. There's also a bisphenol AF. Um, they're all estrogenic. And bisphenol S is used mostly in the epoxy resins of, that line the inside of cans. And the reason that that epoxy liner is there is to prevent that canned food from becoming contaminated with botulism. And it doesn't, it does an absolutely fantastic job of making sure your food doesn't get contaminated with botulism, but unfortunately it can leach uh, and it is estrogenic. And so there's a push now to, instead of regulating chemicals one at a time, to regulate them as a class. So if we say, okay, bisphenol A, definitely not safe. That has to mean all the bisphenols go with it. Um, and that would make things go quicker and faster, except in cases where it's an essential use. So let's say we haven't invented a way to make that epoxy resin without BPS, then you would get to use it until you find an alternative solution. Well, again, is BPS tested? Is it any safer than bisphenol A or is it just different chemical? So on a regulatory framework, no, it's not tested. So it's academic labs like mine that are doing those kinds of testing. And so I haven't done any work with bisphenol S, but my colleagues certainly have. And, you know, most of the problems they find with BPA, most of the health effects they see with BPA, they also see with BPS. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So, yeah, I mean, there was all that effort and it's, I guess we're not in a very different place than we were before. No, it can be really frustrating. And there's a bunch of chemicals that are like this. So there's a group of chemicals called phthalates. They make plastics really soft that are similar. There's a lot of countries that are removed, a whole group of them from the, from the marketplace, but the United States hasn't done that. There's perfluorinated chemicals. So these are the things that are uh, surfactants like Teflon. They, they make things non-stick. There's thousands of them. And so thinking about them as a class, because there's just no way to test one chemical at a time for safety, but we can certainly do it in groups and we can 
Phthalates are another great example because not all of them are harmful. There's only a really small subset that are harmful. And so if you start thinking about chemicals in groups, we'll be able to identify the groups that are more problematic and get rid of them, but hang on to the ones that are less problematic, but still useful for manufacturing. What does the testing look like for various chemicals? Is it done just every once in a while or pretty frequently? But, you know, again, what does it look like? Yeah, so from a regulatory standpoint, so let's say it's FDA or EPA or the equivalent in the European Union or whatever, um, they will use, it's usually an animal-based testing protocol that has all these international agreements as to, you know, what's included in the test and how the data is going to be interpreted. And so it's usually an animal study where you give high levels of the chemical and you look for things like cancer, um, extreme loss of body weight, you know, a lot of obvious things that your animal is really, really sick. Um, and these tests were designed in the 19, some of them in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, and they haven't incorporated a whole lot of new technology in this testing. So for me, as a neuroscientist, you know, taking the brain out and weighing it is really not the best way to find out if the animal is, is harmed. Um, and so it takes more academic and independent labs doing their own independent research to look at other endpoints that are more sophisticated and possibly a lot more sensitive and then trying to convince those agencies to use that data when they consider the safety of the chemical. And it's extremely hard to do. Well, so what is it that you're doing differently? You're doing the batches of testing or you know, what would you say is the, what makes your testing work or is more efficacious or informative than other people's? Well, so if, if, again, if we're just talking about the regulatory agencies, most of the time, if they're looking for an effect on brain, they're looking for a change on the weight of the entire brain itself, or they're looking for huge lesions, some sort of big problem with the brain. I don't do that. I look at how systems and circuits are organized. So for example, the circuit in your brain and in my brain, coordinating many aspects of reproductive function are very different because you're a male and I'm a female. So I need to ovulate and you don't. So I have a whole circuit of neurons and glia in one part of my brain that respond to estrogen and other hormones from my reproductive organs that control my ovulatory cycle. You don't need to do that. So early in development, um, as you were forming in the womb, um, that circuit didn't form. And all of the signals to tell your brain, hey, we don't need to do this, you're not gonna be a female, are vulnerable to chemical exposures. So what I can do in, in male and female animals is expose them to chemicals at different times and I can get male animals to form that female circuit and I can get females to form that male circuit. And then the consequence of that is their reproductive systems don't work properly. Either the females irregularly ovulate or they don't ovulate at all, or we have males that show inappropriate behavior and so it demonstrates the subtle vulnerability of, of that system and how changes to a very small circuit in one part of the brain can profoundly change fertility and behavior. And so that's kind of what I focus on. There are other labs that focus, for example, on feeding circuits, and they can expose animals to different levels of chemicals and get them to eat like way, way, way more food than they normally would because it changes the way the brain handles satiety. And so thinking about how chemicals might be contributing to the obesity epidemic, you know, these types of systems and circuits may be vulnerable to chemical exposure. 
does it uh, you know if you finish gestation does a, a male whatever it is turn into a female or vice versa or you end up with again still a male still a female but like you said they're reproductively a mess so it's the second right so if i look at the animal physically it looks male or it looks female but reproductively they're kind of a mess so you might have a normally looking female you know she's got all the parts you know that make her a female but she can't ovulate properly and she can't ovulate properly because part of the circuit that she needs to do that in her brain didn't form right so it wouldn't be obvious and the same would be true in the male so what to i mean when you figure out what various batches of chemicals are doing then who do you give your guidance to is it heard what's the process from there for you know something actually to be done yeah well it's a lot of different ways so for example talking to you is helpful because getting people to sort of understand the situation and and why it's important and what's happening is really key i try i publish my data of course i go to different scientific meetings i coordinate with other scientists so a lot of times if I'm running an experiment with an animal, we'll share tissues and we'll work together um, to try to generate even more data. And then we try to convince governments, both at the federal and the state level, to, to use that data when they're considering safety of chemicals, um, explaining it to communities that are specifically affected. So, for example, I, I talked about the perfluorinated compounds before. There are places in the United States where chemical manufacturing companies and others have deliberately dumped these chemicals into the environment and heavily contaminated communities. So their, their drinking water is, is loaded with this stuff. And so communicating with them so they understand the risk and what they can do. You know, it's, it's information sharing to try to create a healthier space for everyone. Well, what would you say are some of the most urgent chemicals that you've tested that are problematic to, uh, to get rid of or mitigate? Yeah, I, I, so the most important thing is that the list is really small. You know, I always feel like, you know, there's this idea that there's a group of scientists that want to ban every chemical. And it's just not the case. The list is actually pretty small and manageable. So bisphenol A and its related bisphenols would be one. You know, at the very least, they shouldn't be in food packaging and things where they can contaminate our food and other things where we might get exposed. The phthalates are another one. That, that one is a total no-brainer. A whole bunch of of countries have already eliminated the, the most problematic phthalates um, and we have replacements for them. So it's very easy to manufacture items without using them. So that would be another one. Um, the perfluorinated chemicals are sort of, they're not really new. They've been around since the 1950s. They're, they're new because we're paying attention to them new. And those because their half-life in your body is on the order of years and decades. So if you get exposed today, it's going to be in your body for anywhere from seven to 10 years. And so those long-lived wow. chemicals, yeah, cause us to be concerned. Are there any, are there any protocols to uh, like chelation or things like that that have been found to uh, safely reduce the body burden of some of these chemicals? So for most of them, you really don't have to worry about it. So if, if you you know, we're exposed to bisphenol A this morning, it's probably already out of your body. They have really sh short half-life. So, I mean, that's a positive. So as we, as we stop putting these chemicals into the world, our body burdens go down really quick. There are some that are longer lived. So the perfluorinateds are one. Flame retardants are another because they're designed to be, right? Like if you buy a couch today, you, you don't want it to lose its flame retardant properties in six months. So the longer lived ones are sort of tricky and figuring out how to get them out either nutritionally or by other ways. It's a whole another area of science, but most of them disappear. Okay. So what, again, do you have any instruction to various industries on chemicals that need to be mitigated? Are some of them 
so critical that they can't be reduced? Like, what's the actual state of, you, know, you said it's a short list of real bad guys, but individually, what's happening regulation-wise with all of them? With this short list, are we making progress or is there pushback? There's always pushback. You know, unfortunately, economic interests and health interests often clash. So, you know, whenever you're trying to restrict a chemical, you're restricting some industry's income, right? So it's always a tricky dialogue of wanting to maintain economic growth, but also maintaining human health. And the air pollution data over the last 40, 50, 60 years has shown that you can get both, that you can definitely put into place some chemical management policies that both further human health and also further economic development. Um, you just can't do things really extremely quickly and you have to do them thoughtfully and engage the different stakeholders in order to move the needle and, and make some change. It's been slow, um, but it's possible. Well, do you use legal action or what's some of the strategies to, uh, you know, to get, you well, can. to implement change? So I don't personally use legal action, but that has definitely been a tool. People have sued over exposures, both individually and communities. So for example, in some of those communities where companies deliberately dumped perfluorinated chemicals into their drinking water for years and decades, there are many, many, many lawsuits around that. You probably saw the one on glyphosate or Roundup, um, which is an herbicide that, you know, there was good evidence that Monsanto, who developed that herbicide, knew had health risks to humans and sort of minimized that through the approval process. And now, you know, lawsuits are pending. There's another herbicide, Paraquat, which Paraquat is, is extremely deadly. And we have big restrictions around it in the U.S., but we don't elsewhere. And it'll even say something on the label like one drop will kill you. It's highly toxic, thought to contribute to Parkinson's disease. There's lawsuits around that as well. But, I, you know, as a Where is, where is para, a, Paraquat used? Oh, a lot in South America, parts of Europe, um, developing parts of the world. But, I mean, literally one drop. And it's, in some countries, it's one of the top ways in which people commit suicide. It's just sad. What do you mean? They eat, uh, they, what, they drink a drop or two and that's yeah. the end of them? Yeah, that's it. How do people eat the food without getting horribly sick if it's so deadly? Right. So that's the question. So usually what happens is, you know, it'll break down in the environment over time. And when you eat it, you your food is contaminated with it, but it's contaminated with small amounts. And so if you eat tiny, tiny amounts of it over time, what is the outcome? And it looks like the outcome is a higher risk of Parkinson's disease. And there's probably other outcomes as well. It's highly neurotoxic. Okay. It, it just anecdotally, it seems like supposedly... Europe is more protective over chemical use than the U.S., but is that true at all, or is that be? It is true. It is true. And so Europe's had this attitude of prove it safe before you bring it to the market, and the U.S. has essentially had the opposite. We're going to bring it to the market and we'll worry about it if we find out it's not safe. And so with that attitude, Europe does a whole lot more testing before chemicals come to the market than the United States does, and they're a lot quicker at pulling things off the market or restricting them from use when they find out they have a problem. They're also much more protective of their food chain and food supply. And that's for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, anyone who spends time with the French or the Italians know that their food to them is, is sacred, right? And so this idea of genetically modified food and other stuff has never been palatable to the Europeans. They don't do mass agriculture like we do. So a lot of it is just cultural. It's this cultural 
attitude toward how you make and grow food that, that makes things different? So, I mean, if Europe has this opposite ideal, does the United States look to that and say, all right, you know, let's use them. They're already testing stuff. So that'll be a shortcut for us. Or are they just ignoring the findings? No, it's worse than that. So the, <laughs> the U.S. tries to write trade deals to make it where we where the Europeans are less restrictive so that we can sell our things to them. So it's always a, it's always a dialogue back and forth. Unfortunately, the U.S. has taken this stance that better living through chemistry, even if there's a bunch of data showing that those chemicals can cause harm. Yeah, that's, that's not good. So what's your strategy? Do you work entirely just with U.S.-based businesses and legislation, or do you tend to go over to Europe and work with them, or you know, what do you do? I work all around the world. So, you know, before COVID kept me from being on airplanes, you know, I've worked with, with, I've done a lot of stuff in Europe. I've communicated with groups in Africa. I've been to a bunch of places. A lot of it is listening to what people are concerned about, trying to understand what their environment looks like and trying to find, you know, this environmental sources of human disease, right? So my number one issue is, is thinking about neurodevelopmental disorders. So, you know, this the CDC just revised our autism numbers. It's now one in, in 56 kids. And then for boys, it's as low as like one in 32. That's one little boy in every classroom. That's crazy, right? So trying to think about where is that coming from? recognizing there's not going to just be one thing. There's going to be a variety of things contributing to that. And how do we mitigate it? Because I think everybody wants to do better and trying to make sure that we're generating data that's rigorous and robust and reproducible so that, you know, if I run the experiment in my lab, I see it. If you run the experiment in your lab, you see it. And then having a conversation about how to use that data to make change, whether it's at federal level, whether it's trying to convince Walmart, hey, you know, don't sell product X because it's got this in it. I mean, there's a lot of ways to move the needle. And consumers have a lot of power. The consumer voice has done a lot more for change than than any regulatory agency has. It was it was consumers demanding BPA-free uh, food containers that got us the BPA-free water bottle. It's been parents saying they don't want phthalates and teethers to get some of that out of baby products. And I've been involved in a lot of conversations about how to get flame retardant chemicals out of furniture and kids' mattresses and strollers and things like that. And all of that is very satisfying because when I work with my colleagues who measure chemicals in the home, um, those numbers go down. And so it's really gratifying to know that science can affect change and can affect change that really benefits all of us. Well, very good. Um, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, they can always look at my website. Um, I have one for my laboratory at North Carolina State University. I also work a lot with the Endocrine Society, which has a lot of information about endocrine disrupting chemicals and health and endocrine health in general. And then if people want to learn about how to keep their homes safe or simple things they can do to reduce chemical exposure in the home, environmental working group has a fantastic tool called Healthy Living. It's, I've got the app on my phone right now where you can walk around the store and scan the barcodes and, and choose the safer products. And there's another group called Mind the Store that rates different um, consumer like Target, like retailers, Target and Walmart and such 
to say, hey, you know, if you shop at this store, they've they've made a big push to eliminate these chemicals from all of their products in the store. So you can feel safe as you go shopping through the store. And I, I think all of those tools are a great way for people to sort of use their purchasing power to maximize their own health. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Heather, again, any particular website people can go to or what's the best place where they can find out everything you're working on? All right. Well, so my website is Patasol Lab, so P-A-T-I-S-A-U-L-L-A-B dot WordPress dot N-C-S-U dot E-D-U. And on my website, I have a tab called Making Safer Stuff and a lot of the links to other educational and informational materials are there. Okay, very good. Patasol Lab. Okay, well, Heather, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.